morning, Redeemer City Church. Pastor Levi is finishing up a week of vacation, so it is my privilege to be with you and to bring God's Word to you and read it together. So let's do just that. Let's jump right into it. Would you open up in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4? And as you're turning there, let me just say that this morning we are going to be continuing on in our series in the Apostles' Creed. And today we're going to be looking at the line, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now at first glance, this might seem like an interesting line for a Baptist church to be preaching on, but I do believe if you look down again and take a second glance, you will see that it is not so strange at all. Because sometimes we read it and we think it is saying, I believe in the Roman Catholic Church, but that's not what it says. It instead refers to the holy, small c, Catholic Church. And this distinction is of vital importance. You see, the word Catholic, as it appears in the Creed, is just another term for the word universal. Timothy George, a Baptist theologian, writes this. Protestants, of course, do not equate Catholic with Roman Catholic. To avoid this misunderstanding, some prefer to say Holy Christian Church. While there is nothing wrong with this term, We should not be embarrassed by the older wording. The word Catholic simply means general, universal, concerning the whole. The creed, therefore, is inviting us this morning into a consideration of God's universal church, as it exists throughout the world in all of its various local congregations and throughout all of the various denominations. Now, in just a minute, we will look at Ephesians 4, But I do want to make one note. I want us to note that we are entering into this book at a very interesting chapter. You see, Ephesians 4 acts as a hinge chapter. The Apostle Paul has just laid out three chapters of deep theological truth, and now he is beginning to lay out some practical implications of that truth. For our purposes this morning, it's going to be very helpful to look back on a few of these truths presented to us in the first three chapters. One in particular that I think we have to pause at is, what is the church? Who is the church? I mean, if we're going to talk about the Holy Catholic Church, we have to have some sort of groundwork there. Well, you can see in Ephesians 1, verse 22, is the first occasion in this letter where that word church appears. And it is there that we read, And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what do we learn from that? We learn that the church is the collective body of believers who have Christ as their head. It is made up of every individual whose only hope of salvation rests in the life, death, resurrection, and present intercession of Christ. Together, these individuals, no matter their tribe, no matter their tongue, No matter their skin color or race, or no matter their denominational affiliation, these people combined make up God's holy Catholic Church. And with that in our head, we can now dig into Ephesians chapter 4 and see what God has for us. So let's read Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for our purposes this morning, we're actually going to unpack this text in reverse order. I know that's a little bit different, but there is a good reason. So Paul began by telling us how we should live out this unity, and then he tells us what our unity is grounded in. So this morning, I just want us to actually stop and think, why are we united? What is the foundations of the unity that we have? And then we'll talk about how we live it out. So the first thing I think we're going to see here as we look at this chapter is that it is very clear we are united as a church because of the unity that exists in the Godhead. And this seems entirely appropriate, does it not? The Trinity is, after all, the reality that sets Christianity apart from all other world faiths. We could sit down and come up with a list of multiple things, I'm sure, but nothing, nothing would be more important than the distinction that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God is triune. So significant is this truth that if we were to deny it, you would no longer be the church. You would have denied historic Christian doctrine, and you would be doing something else entirely different. And just as this doctrine is essential, just as this doctrine is so important, so too is this doctrine of the unity of the church. Right? They go hand in hand. Our unity, as we fellowship with one another, and as we fellowship with the church across the street, and as we fellowship with churches across this land, tells the world something about the God whom we worship. So we got to get this right. We have to take this seriously. So let's begin unpacking this. In verse 4, we are going to see that the church is united by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Now isn't it fitting that last week, Pastor Levi walked us through uh, some teaching on the Holy Spirit. It's foundational. If we're going to talk about the church, we must first understand the Holy Spirit. G.I. Packer picks up on this in his book on the Apostles' Creed. He says, It is by strict theological logic that the creed confesses faith in the Holy Spirit before proceeding to the church, and that it speaks of the church before mentioning personal salvation, forgiveness, resurrection, everlasting life. For though the Father and the Son have loved the church, and the Son has redeemed it, It is the Holy Spirit who actually creates it by inducing faith. And it is the church through its ministry and fellowship that personal salvation ordinarily comes to be enjoyed. And we got a glimpse of that last week. And if we had have read all of Ephesians, we would have got a glimpse of it there too. Ephesians 1 verse 13 to 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life that makes us born again believers. When someone responds to the gospel with faith and repentance, they are immediately filled with the Holy Spirit and they are grafted in to the body of Christ. And this has very big implications for us today. An excellent example that will help us see some of our contemporary implications comes from that time, that point in time, when the Gentiles, the, the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, and all of a sudden they were brought into the church. And we read about that in the conversion of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. 
If you want, you can turn with me there, or perhaps it'll show up on the screen. Acts chapter 10, verse 44 to 48 tells this story. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some time. Now the reason I want us to look at this incredible event in the history of the church is because it has a lot of contemporary relevance. You see, this is the first time that the Gentiles were brought in, and nothing could have been more astonishing to the Jews than this. You see, for so long, Jewish culture had built a culture around looking different than these people. They were to have nothing to do with them. They were to be distinct and set apart. And now all of that is changing. And now all of a sudden, these strangers, these foreigners, these Gentile dogs are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's going to require some work. How are we going to fellowship? How are we going to live out this new reality? Now, we are living 2,000 years after the fact. In fact, I think most people listening to this are probably Gentiles themselves. So we take it for granted. But the lesson for us is how are we going to fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who look different than us? What are we going to do when the Holy Spirit falls on somebody who we just don't naturally get along with? How are we going to fellowship with someone who has a different worship style than us? Who's got an interest in different theological secondary notes? Someone who lifts their hands up and sings a little bit more exuberantly than we are comfortable with. Can we get along with those people? Are those people our brothers and sisters in Christ? And the answer is yes. So we need to stop being suspicious of those outside of our little bubble. We need to be stopped being suspicious if, if they don't belong to Redeemer City Church or perhaps Cornerstone. Maybe we're comfortable with them, but anyone else, I don't know. And we need to be comfortable with those who do not take on the name of Baptist for themselves. We need to extend our borders. We need to begin thinking about God's holy Catholic Church. And at the very least, the very bottom of this, we must never make light of or fun of the different traditions that other people choose to worship Jesus by. I can't think of anything that would be worse than mocking another person's sincere relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's be careful. Let's be reminded that even those who look different than you, who act different than you, and who have some secondary notes of preference different than you, they are God's children. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's act accordingly. Now, of course, this does invite a question. I'm sure as you're hearing this said, you might want to ask the question, well, how do we even know if they are a sincere believer? I mean, if we didn't see the Holy Spirit fall on them, how do we know if they are in or if they are out? Because certainly there are some grounds, right? Not everyone who takes the name of a Christian is. And that is true. But thankfully, Ephesians 4 continues on with giving us a few other grounds for our unity. And the second ground of our unity we see is that the church is united by faith in God the Son. Look with me at Ephesians 4, both verses 4 and 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, 
one baptism. So here the Apostle Paul is grounding our unity in the person of Jesus Christ. So we have to have the Holy Spirit and we have to have the same beliefs about Jesus Christ. But of course, lots of people take on the name of Jesus Christ who don't have a sincere relationship with him. And we should expect that. It was Jesus himself who said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So Jesus is here clearly teaching that some people call themselves Christians but are not. And I'm almost certain that everyone listening to this can think of somebody who would fit that role in their life. Someone who says they believe in Jesus, but who live their life in complete opposition to all of his moral teachings. Or perhaps they say they believe in Jesus, but really he is nothing more than one of their many gods or one of their good luck charms they call to when things get rough. Indeed, whole religions have been built on Jesus, but remain erroneous and heretical For example, should we consider the Jehovah's Witnesses our brothers and sisters in Christ because they too call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior? Absolutely not. We shouldn't. But why? What is the difference? Because they are not holding to that one faith that is mentioned here in Ephesians 4 verse 5. They do not hold to the one Lord, one faith, and one baptism that is proclaimed in the Holy Scriptures. You see, they deny the reality of the deity of Christ. They teach that he was just another created person. And that excludes them. That excludes them from the faith. They have walked away from historic Christian teaching. And we should not consider them family. So there are. There are very real theological differences that we should divide over. That we must divide over. There comes a time where we need to draw that line in the sand and say... If you're over there, then you are not one of us. You are different. You're not the family of God. And because there is this very real line in the sand, that is one of the reasons we have chosen to do this study in the Apostles' Creed. Because the Apostles' Creed is a perfect example of a line in the sand. We have been spending the past several weeks going over foundational Christian doctrine that set us apart from the rest of the world. If you believe these things then you are in good, safe territory. But as soon as you begin to walk away, you are walking away from 2,000 years of church history. And we should begin to ask questions. That's why we're doing this study. That's why we need to take this absolutely seriously. Because it will show us who is in the family of God. But while I admit there are reasons that we should divide over, legitimate reasons, I'm not sure that that is our problem. I would hazard a guess that our problem is likely that we are far too prone to make divisions where a division is not necessary. I don't know about you, but I've heard many stories about churches splitting over the silliest of reasons, whether it is a a different taste in worship preferences, or I think the worst thing I've ever heard was a split over carpet color, which is just ridiculous. Like, we should... Be grieved to our heart that the unity of the church could be divided over such trivial things. And we should repent of all of the times that we have participated in that way of thinking. Where we have cast other people aside because they have different preferences than our own. 
You see, our unity is built on the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, not on all of these other things, not even on our our liturgical preferences. You can read the common book of prayer and have it as a core part of your services, and you are still a brother or sister in Christ. Thanks be to God that you love that book. Thanks be to God that that is helpful to you. Glory to Him. That doesn't exclude you. So, the church is bigger than we are prone to think. But granted, there are differences. Some of these differences, we, we meet separately. This is why the church meets in smaller congregations, and it is why these smaller congregations gather around various denominations. But this does not mean, for example, that a Baptist believer has no union with a Presbyterian believer. The simple truth is, it would just be a very weird Sunday if you had a Baptist minister come up and dedicate a baby while the Presbyterian pastor jumped up, grabbed the baby out, and sprinkled them, right? That wouldn't, that wouldn't work. That would be very confusing. Doesn't mean they're not brothers and sisters in Christ, but it means that they've come to different conclusions on matters of secondary importance. And that's okay. It's okay to meet in different churches. It's okay to gather around different denominations. There's nothing wrong with that. But by all means, we can still have fellowship despite these distinctions. I don't know how many of you had the opportunity to gather uh, with Cornerstone and with Emmanuel Baptist across the street from Cornerstone a few weeks back. This is an excellent example. I recognize that both of them are Baptist, uh, but we were able to get together for a night of worship And I I confess, I wasn't able to attend, but I heard from many who did, and it was such an encouragement to them. You see, sometimes it is good to know that we are not alone, that there are brothers and sisters out there who we've never met and who have a sincere, abiding relationship with Christ. Those are the things that we need to be striving for. We need to be living out the unity of the Spirit in this way. And even beyond that, Gospel Coalition is another great example. There you have many different denominations coming together, but holding to the truth of Scripture, holding to the truths found in the Apostles' Creed, enjoying sweet times of worship, enjoying shared times of teaching. Let's strive to meet with those type of people. Let's increase our borders. Let's be willing to include others in our family because it's essential. It's essential not only for our own health and our own encouragement, but it's an essential thing that we show the world that Christ's church is united. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus Christ prayed to the Father saying this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may, be, may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Are you seeing what I am seeing? One of the best proofs that we can give to this world about the truthfulness of the gospel is a witness of a united church. That is compelling. No one is attracted to a church that is split and divided and slinging mud at each other. Christ knew this. Christ knew that the way that we treated one another would tell the world something about the unity of the Godhead. So, so important. 
So brothers and sisters, it is time that we start acting like brothers and sisters. Not just in here with our own people, but with all of the various gatherings of God's people across this town, across this country, and across this world. And the final thing that unites us should come as no surprise based on this triune nature of our unity. But Ephesians 4, 6 adds this, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The third ground of our unity is that we are united by the fatherhood of God. There is a very real sense that the church exists as one big dysfunctional family. This side of glory, no one person or church has all of the answers. And this inevitably leads to conflict and some uncomfortable moments. But at the end of the day, these hardships do not negate the fact that we belong to one another as fellow sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I do want to take a step back and ask that you hear me say that correctly. I'm not referring to the church as a dysfunctional family in order to slander Christ's bride in any way, not to make light of the church. I think very highly of the church, as you can see from this message. But there is going to be hardships. There is some dysfunction that happens. And it shouldn't come as any surprise, because if we were to continue reading on in Ephesians chapter 4, we would see that Paul even predicts that very thing. In Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 14, he says, And he, being God, gave them the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Do you see that? Paul sees this beautiful hope for God's people, but he also recognizes that we have not quite arrived. There's still some maturing to do. We've not arrived at the stature of the fullness of Christ just yet. We will. There awaits a glorious reality for the church. A day when God's people will all dwell together in perfect unity, beholding the glory of God. When there will be perfect peace among brother and sister. And we will all stand together looking at God and all of our errors and all of our confusions will be corrected. We will all be on the same page. No more theological disagreements because God will make all things clear. Man, that's going to be a good day, won't it? It's going to be a glorious day. But that day has not yet come. For now, we still continue to strive towards the unity by the help of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have these instructions. We can't take unity for granted. we got to work it out. It's a truth that we can claim, but it's a truth that we have to work on. So don't jump out of this family vehicle just because the road is bumpy and hard, right? Don't be discouraged by the overwhelming amount of denominations and churches you see in this town. And as a pastor to young people, I know that many are discouraged by this. It is one of the common complaints that young people will make. Like, why? How do I even know what church to join? How can this gospel be true if there's a different denomination on every street corner that says a different version of this truth? 
And to that I would say, don't fret. Buckle in, find yourself a church, and prepare yourself for the ride because the destination is worth it. It's going to be tricky. Uh, It's going to take some learning. And as you go along this road, as much as possible, get along with your brothers and sisters in the back seat. Even though they are not perfect, neither are you. Recognize that just like any family, if you belong to a family, you know that with family comes disagreements. So too, there will be disagreements in the family of God. And what we need to do when we have them is not burn down the house, but we need to have reasonable conversation. And even then, we may not come to the same conclusions, but at least we will have conducted ourselves in a way appropriate of sons and daughters of God. And we will have offered the world a compelling witness to God's love. You see, I don't think anyone would be too concerned that there was a Pentecostal church and a Baptist church in the same town if they got along. It's when they bicker and spat and when they make little snide comments when the other's not present, even if it's just a light-hearted jest, that can be worrisome to the new believer. So let's put those things aside. And I'm afraid that as I think think on it, I'm not sure that the evangelical church as a whole is doing a great job at this, particularly at this point of time, right? You're all aware it has been a difficult year. There's many things that, as I look back on this last year, that I'm not a fan of, um, that I wish were different. But I'm not sure that there's anything that grieves me more than the way I have seen brothers and sisters in Christ treat each other. You see, we have turned on each other for heinous reasons. Not because anyone has changed their views on the deity of Christ. Not because anyone has changed their views on the lordship of Christ or on the goodness of God. But we have divided and we have thrown mud over issues of politics and personal liberties. And that grieves me. Because you know, at the start of this pandemic, and by no means do I want to make light of this pandemic, but I actually had a fair bit of hope. I had a hope that this was going to be the opportunity for the church to shine as a light in the darkness like I had never seen in my lifetime. And I think this hope was built up in me because I had an unsaved family member actually commend our church. He said he so appreciated the way that we listened to the government. We listened to the health authorities and we we slowed things down. We temporarily ceased gathering together, but we by no means shut our door. Right? We continued to amp up our ministry. We made sure that not only were our own people cared for, but we made sure the people of this community were cared for. And it was noticed. It was noticed by my family member who doesn't go to church, who doesn't love Jesus. And yet he saw this distinction. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be good. Right? Because if we're doing this here, then surely this is what the church is doing across Canada. And in this darkness, Christ and his church is going to shine. But a year has passed. A little over a year has passed since that happened. And I find myself feeling quite differently. Now, rather than being hopeful, I find myself hoping that none of my unsaved family members have very many Christians on their social media account. You see, I'm terrified that they're going to pull back the curtains and catch a glimpse of some of the toxic ways that Christians have been treating one another. Some of the slanderous things that they have been saying. Right? The comment section on Facebook is not a friendly place to be right now. And not only in Christian Facebook pages, uh, but on the public forums. 
Right? We've turned what should be an in-house conversation, an in-house debate, into a public spectacle. We have refused to allow brothers and sisters in Christ to come to any kind of different opinion than us on secondary issues. And we have called into question the sincerity of their faith when they do come to a different conclusion. And this is true of both sides of the spectrum. So I don't want to say that I'm pointing at any one person or any one side in particular. I just think as evangelicals, we can do better. We can let the world know that we disagree, but still have an immense love for one another. And a lot of that comes down to our tone and the words that we choose to use. Right? This is not the way that any family should be conducting itself, let alone the family of God. Nowhere in Scripture will you find a command to belittle your neighbor or make light of his convictions. Rather, the repeated command of Scripture is to outdo one another in showing honor. So how do we do it? How do we treat one another with kindness? How do we live out the unity that is ours by nature of the triune God that we serve? Well, at the start of this message, I said we were going to unpack Ephesians 4, 1-6 backwards. So let's do that. Let's go back to the start. Let's reread Ephesians 4, verse 1-3 to and see how we are called to conduct ourselves. We read, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So in light of that, how do we conduct ourselves? Well, the first thing we see is that we are to conduct ourselves with humility. This is where it starts. And perhaps there's no better explanation of humility, at least no more famous explanation of humility, than that quote by C.S. Lewis, who says, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. I've always loved this one. I like it because it provides a helpful corrective. It tells us what it is not, but then it provides what it is. It provides the positive. And the positive it gives is something that is very easy for us to put into practice. You see, there is a significant difference between self-degradation and humility. We're not being called here to belittle ourselves and to think ourselves useless, not to just roll over and die on your theological convictions just because someone confronts you. We're simply called to think of ourselves less. We're to be less proud. We're supposed to recognize that we are not perfect, that it is possible we might be wrong. We might be wrong on an individual level, and dare I say it, we might be wrong on a few of our tried and true Baptist convictions. But again, hear me say that right. I think the Baptist tradition has the, the monopoly on truth. I'm not a Baptist preacher just because I landed here, but I'm convictionally a Baptist. I believe that the Scripture teaches what we believe on the nature of believer's baptism. I believe what it says about church membership and church leadership. I am convictionally a Baptist, and yet I can recognize that perhaps on that glorious day when I stand before God, He will reveal to us that there's some of our things that we could have tweaked here and there. 
right? How many of you have the exact same theological convictions you had at the moment of your salvation? I would imagine that very few of you do. So let's be humble, and let's realize that in five years, ten years, thirty years, when Christ returns, he might reveal that we should have listened to our brothers and sisters more. And as I was reading some commentaries on this topic, I so appreciated what John Calvin had to say. He said, let us remember, therefore, that in cultivating brotherly kindness, we must begin with humility. Whence comes rudeness, pride, disdainful language towards brethren? Whence comes quarrels, insults, and reproaches? Come they not from this, that everyone carries his love of himself and his regard to his own interests to excess? You see, I think he's hit the nail on the head here with this recognition that the problem is excess. You see, it is not wrong to love yourself, nor is it wrong to love your local church and your denominational affiliation. Those are great things. You should love your church. Please do whatever you need to do to work it out that you love this local body of believers. But never let that love become what destroys those around you. Don't let the good things about this place be what makes you tear apart the good things happening over there. So by all means, let's open up the scriptures and let's come to our own conclusions, but let's also be prepared to listen to others who are doing that same exercise. And if corrected on grounds of scripture, let's be prepared to change. Let's operate with humility. And as we do that, let's add to our humility gentleness. Because perhaps you are humble. Perhaps you have listened to the opposing view with charity and openness, and yet you haven't changed your mind. You still believe that the scripture teaches what you originally believed. And perhaps you even think that these convictions are of great importance, that they must be held to, that if we only believed these things and operate on these things, that we would be greatly helped in our relationship with Christ. Even if this describes you, Let me say that you are never given permission to be anything less than gentle with a brother or sister in Christ. This is what we see over and over again in the scriptures. We are commended to the spirit of gentleness. Let me show you three of these occasions. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Later on in the same book, it says in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 to 25, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You see, in these verses, we are taught that the gentleness is one of those things that the Spirit grows in us. It is a fruit of the Spirit. You should be more gentle this year than you were last. It should be something that you are continually growing in. And you're called to be gentle, not just with those who agree with you, but even with your opponents and even with those people who are caught in sin. And yet sometimes we think that the only way to get our point across is to be loud and to be brash. But that's simply not true. We must have picked that lesson up somewhere from the world because it is nowhere taught in the scriptures. 
We see in the Scriptures that it is the gentle tongue that turns away wrath. We see in the Scriptures that it is the gentle tongue that is the tree of life. So if we want to strive for unity, then we need to spend more time being humble, and we need to spend more time being gentle. And thirdly, we need to grow in patience. Once again, this isn't a new teaching. If you memorize the fruits of the Spirit as a young child, you know that like like the others on the list, patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is growing inside every believer. Right? And if you've been attending this church for any amount of time, you have heard, you've been exhorted over and over again to play the long game. Right? This is one of the recurring themes in both Pastor Levi's and Pastor Paul's sermons. I know this to be true because I listen to the same sermons that you guys do. And I believe it is a recurring theme because it is a recurring theme in Scripture. And it is a theme that is very opposed to modern day teaching in our culture. You see, we live in a society that has been built around instant gratification. We want what we want, and we want it now. But this type of thinking is antithetical to the Scriptures. You see, a few moments ago in Ephesians, we talked about how we were growing into the fullness of Christ. We talked about how we are not yet perfect, that you are not yet perfect. And because this is true, we must be patient with one another. We must be quick to show grace and quick to provide opportunity for further growth. And finally, lastly, in addition to humility, gentleness, and patience, we are told that we must bear with one another in love. We must add to these three things loving forbearance. And this is what it all comes down to. If we want to effectively show Christ to this world, then we must be committed to bearing with one another and forgiving one another. We must be committed to looking past our differences, and we must be committed to showing kindness even to those with whom we fundamentally disagree. And why? Because this is exactly what Christ has done for us. Despite all of our sin, despite our constant rebellion, Christ came to die for us while we were still sinners. And as we think about that, as we think about our Lord Jesus Christ hanging on that cross, mocked by the soldiers around him, mocked by the thieves beside him, what does he do? What example does he set for us? Jesus cries out to his Father with these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, if this is the example that Christ lays for us on how we treat our enemies, how much more should we be willing to forgive our brothers and sisters in the faith? It is well past time that we put aside our animosity in our suspicion towards those brothers and sisters who look different than us, who act different than us, who believe some different things than us. It is time that we extend to one another the same kindness and the same forgiveness and the same grace that we have received from Christ. This is the manner of living to which we have been called. It is a high end. It is going to require a lot of help. We're only going to be able to do it by the help of the Holy Spirit. But thanks be to God, we have been filled with the Holy Spirit for this very thing. So let us seek his help to this end right now.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for our salvation. That we, at one time, were dead in our sins, isolated from all another, from one another, enemies of God. And in that moment, you died for us. You came into darkness to bring us home. And you transformed our hearts of stone into hearts of living flesh. What an incredible gift. And Lord, we repent of all of the times that we have withheld this same gift to others. When we have looked down on others whom you have saved. Others whom you deemed worth dying for. And we are quick to cast them aside because they think slightly differently than we do. Oh Lord, I pray that that would not be true. Help us. Help us to be kind and gracious and compassionate. Help us to be humble, gentle, patient, and to lovingly forbear with one another. For we believe that when this is done, we will give this world a compelling witness to the nature of the true church and the nature of you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So help us in these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.